Calling out cars, calling out cars. That's a 211 in progress down at the First National Bank. No, the first one. Oh, he's making a break for it. He's headed straight for the paper bag factory. Oh, he made it out the back door. Now he's unlocked the gate to the skinny miniature pony pin and he's galloping away. Ah, oh, his luck's ran short. He's being attacked by a giant jellyfish. Well, that's it for the royalty-free sound effects, Bandit. They caught him in an alley. He's so scared you can hear his bones rattling from here. Oh no, he's got a bomb! Okay, light it. Where did you get this? It doesn't matter, just light it. Is this dangerous? Of course it's dangerous with a bomb. I don't think this is legal. Of course not. Light, 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 light it. It's not light. Light it. You light it. Okay, well, we'll light it. Alright, on, on three, we'll light it. Okay. First National Bank. Second National Bank. <gasps> Wait! What is plutonium? Hello and welcome to episode 6 of LA Meekly, the podcast. This is me, Danny Z. This is me, um, Greg Z. <laughs> we got married over between the last episode and now. There's a Z in my last name. I'm just... I'm just there's now there's two. one more. <laughs> so, uh, it's spring. Uh, it's still spring it's for a little bit longer. <laughs> so we figured we'd talk about something spring-related. Spring cleaning, where they clean out bank vaults. <laughs> and also, they spring out of jail. <laughs> there's also springs and guns that are used sometimes to run banks. So we figured, you know... Why not talk about some of the... You know, more famous bank robberies that have happened in what is or was once known as the um, bank robbery capital of the world. Yes, Los Angeles. a proud title. Mm-hmm. We carried it. We carried it so far. <laughs> yeah, what better way to celebrate the rebirth of the earth <laughs> than with robbing it for all it's worth? <laughs> it's not necessarily something people that are our age remember about L.A., but like you were saying... For a few decades, L.A. was the bank robbery capital of the world. Mm -hmm. It was from the early 60s to the early 2000s. And it has a reputation that was dating back even further, which we'll get into later. But it looks like things were really at their worst in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And during this time, the FBI had to set up a task force in L.A. to deal exclusively with bank robberies. And in 1983, L.A. had more bank robberies than the next four regions on the list combined. <laughs> you know, we, we kind of wonder why, why L.A. What makes L.A. special about bank robberies? Why would it be the capital? We have places like New York and Chicago, which are such small metropolitan areas. You'd think that would be a big part of it. L.A. is so widespread, but it turns out that widespread aspect of L.A. is what it helps. helps. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have another reason that you're going to enjoy, but I'll get to that. Oh, boy, please take your time. So... Well, I'm there. So <laughs> some of the reasons that people think it was like that was because of the, all the new freeways that were being made, mm -hmm. made it easier to get in and out of a crime scene. Might have been the population boom that hit the city around that time. Yeah. It might have been the influx in the number of banks at that time. And also they think is partially because of the increased availability of weapons on the street after the L.A. riots. Oh, look at that. Completing their streak of appearing it's in every episode. It's not the same episode. when someone else brings it up. Do you want to read that line? <laughs> they credit it a lot to like 
sort of laid back security of California banks that a lot of them didn't put plexiglass or control access. They wouldn't access. take off their sun. All the security guards wouldn't take off their sunglasses. They all wore shorts to work. They were hoping that Steven Spielberg would walk into the bank and rob them. I was wearing a gun in a holster, but I fell on my sandals and broke my toe, so I just left the gun at home. I was cowabunga <laughs> I dropped it. Listen, surfboard of the gun, I got to pick one. <laughs> They're also talking about a really good book on the subject, which I, I'm practically just reading verbatim, is uh, Where the Money Is, uh, True Tales from the Bank Robbery Capital of the World from uh, William Rader and Gordon Dillo. I read it. Uh, it's very well written. It's from I FBI. read it cover and cover. Cover and cover. What was I talking about? <laughs> Something about... Native oh, food of LA? that's right. Um, they were allowed to open more um, branches than most other cities, like small branches instead of like, you know, there's Bank of America. Then there's also like the smaller banks, like the First National of whatever. And they're open throughout the entire city. They have a regulation for other cities, apparently. But for LA, it didn't really matter. So there was a lot of smaller banks that people could just walk in and rob. Mm -hmm. And reading all these stories. Mom and pop banks. Mom and pop banks. which I robbed my parents. Reading a lot of these bank robbery stories, they're not all full-scale robberies. A lot of them are so small because those banks are so small that there's so many bank robberies. Not all of them are, are big scale. They're, they're sort of small-time stuff. And there's a lot of them. That's why... We're known for the capital. There were a lot of them. I have some statistics, which I know everyone loves when I give them. Uh, I'm taking that. Wake me up when you're done. The worst year of all. <laughs> oh, oh, he died. The, the worst year of all, it was 1992 when, according to an FBI record, this was a number from an area that wasn't just L.A. It was the seven-county region around L.A., mm -hmm. including L.A. County. There were an average 28 bank robberies every day in that year, and there were God. over 2,600 throughout the entire year. Compare that to the last report they had from 2013. There were only 212 bank robberies total in L.A. County. Bank robberies, they've been on a steady decline since the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. In 2003, there were 7,500 robberies nationwide with a total, this is nationwide, total yeah. 77 million stolen with an average haul per robbery at over 10,000. By 2011, there were only 5,000 committed with a total of 38 million taken with an average of under 7,500 per heist. Wow. And compare that to uh, the average 1997 being 12,400. Mm -hmm. So the world was changing, including LA, which I think is part of the world. Is it? Does Wikipedia know? Let's ask the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> so the FBI's LA task force around, you know, th mm -hmm. when things started going down, they got disbanded. There were a lot of factors that contributed to the downfall of bank robberies. There was better technology and bank protection, bulletproof glass, exploding ink packs, yeah. high-definition surveillance cameras. Technology was making it easier to track the criminals. Mm -hmm. There was more severe punishment. It's 20 years for robbery, 25 for armed robbery. Banks, they simply have less money in them nowadays. Yeah. And also cybercrime is, it's the cool new thing. Mm -hmm. Our grandkids are going to be cyber criminals, obviously. They'll not have to leave their room, which is what we always wanted as and kids. And I can see them every day. <laughs> Good old-fashioned bank robberies, they're extremely high risk. And nowadays they have a very low reward. Compared to cybercrime, extremely low risk, huge rewards. In 2011 alone, there were 314,000 reported internet crimes. Wow. Robbers nowadays, they prefer just to steal online rather than go into a brick and mortar bank with an actual brick. Yeah, and a, yeah. And a, mortar. And a mortar too. And mortar, yeah. That's how you take the bricks down. Robberies like this still exist though. Some of the best names, there was a database of all the, was going all of the, yeah. all the people operating in LA. Some of my favorite names, the Dishonest Abe Bandit, ah. the Asian Merchant Bag Bandit, 
the bad rug bandit, the flashy post-it note bandit, <laughs> and the Magoo bandit. Ooh, he must have been yeah. wacky. He's not so wacky, okay? I don't know. <laughs> and he's never been caught and he's handsome. Uh, and he has a soothing uh, voice and people like his podcast. <laughs> so we each have a few stories about some of the, the bigger and more historic robberies that happened yeah. in, in history. We're going to go slightly chronologically. Slightly. We don't know numbers. Okay, we're going to start in 2017 and then we're going to go to the 14th century. When LA was first created. <laughs> you know all about that, I bet. <laughs> Sun rises on a sleepy Pueblo town. <laughs> the dawn of LA man. <laughs> Dun, 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 the dun, surf dun. rises. <laughs> the Hollywood sign used to be made out of black monsters. <laughs> the first one I have, I've titled Computer Heist. Ooh, Dinner. nerds. We talked about cybercrime just now a little bit, but a 32-year-old man named Stanley Mark Rifkin was the grandfather of cybercrime, mm -hmm. and he committed the first true crime done by manipulating computers ever. At the time, this was also the largest robbery in U.S. history. Oh, wow. and it happened right here in L.A. The year was 1978, and Rifkin, who was a smooth-talking computer nerd with a love for video chess, mm -hmm. operated a computer consulting firm that he ran out of his apartment in the Valley. And one of his clients was a company that serviced computers at the Security Pacific National Bank. Rifkin would regularly go into the bank's headquarters at 333 Hope Street, which is downtown. Mm -hmm. It's now the Bank of America Center. Okay. He would go in to inspect the computers, and it was known he was friendly with all the company's workers there. The bank's computers were used to transfer funds via wire transfers to any bank account in the country, and they would on average move around $20 billion a week through these computers. Control-Alt-Rob. <laughs> Eventually, Rifkin realized that he could utilize his knowledge of these computers to get to any amount of money transferred to any bank account he wanted. So the only problem was there was a secret code that changed every day that was needed to authorize these transactions, and the only people who knew the code were the workers in the wire transfer room. Also, he could get the money into the account easily enough. The snag was, how could he withdraw it without it being traced to him? So he would have to transform all this cash into an untraceable commodity. The second part was easy enough. Rifkin got a fake passport, simple, mm -hmm. under the name of Mike Hansen, and used it to open a bank account at the Irving Trust Company in New York under this name. So then he got a very reputable diamond broker to broker a deal for him with a Russian diamond company called Rusalmaz yeah. to sell him 115,000 high-quality diamonds for just over $8 million. So the deal was all set to go. Now Rifkin just had to wire the money from the bank's computers into his fank account. Fank account? You said fank. Oh, God. You're Are they called fanks now? <laughs> We're going to change everything. The biggest fank robber. <laughs> uh, he had to transfer it into his fake account and then into the Russian company's Swiss account, and the diamonds would be his. Now, the only problem was the secret code. So this, it turns out, was also easily solved. <laughs> it was too hard for the workers in the wire transfer room to have to memorize a new code every day, so they would keep it posted on their wall. <laughs> should anybody forget it or should any curious robbers come by that mm -hmm. wanted to find out what it was? So Rifkin found this out. And then October 26, 1978, since everybody working in the bank knew him, he just talked his way into the wire transfer room under the guise of having to check something out. And he feverishly memorized the code written on the wall. He thanked them and then he walked out. Then he went into the lobby of the building, placed a call from one of their pay phones, and pretending to be an employee of the wire transfer room, 
he requested a transfer of $10.2 million to the bank account of Mike Hansen, his alter ego. So he gave the day's secret code, and that was that. The diamond deal went through, and Riffin quickly used his fake passport and flew to Zurich and picked up the diamonds. Then he smuggled the diamonds back into the U.S., and he started to sell them off, but he quickly found out that most places weren't interested in buying diamonds. So he sold about $12,000 worth in Beverly Hills, but in L.A., that was all he could do. So he flew to Rochester, New York, not part of California, not part of L.A., And he tried to sell the diamonds to an old business associate of his. And meanwhile, the bank had no idea that he had robbed them until eight days after the robbery took place. The FBI called them and said, you know, you have $10.2 million (laughs) missing. And the suspect is probably this guy, Stanley Rifkin, that works for you. So um, I don't know if the old business associate he was talking to was actually interested in the diamonds But before he did anything, he saw on the news that Rifkin was wanted in connection to this giant bank heist. So he reported him immediately to the FBI. But Rifkin was already in Carlsbad, also not Los Angeles, staying with a friend. But when he called the old business associate back about the deal, the FBI was listening to the call and they traced it. And they went straight to Carlsbad Uh, where they found Rifkin hiding in a closet uh, (laughs) and he immediately surrendered. It must have been the nicest closet. A closet made of diamonds. (laughs) When they found him, he had a plastic bag filled with 19 pounds of Russian diamonds. And some of the diamonds were worth $30,000 each. Wow. So he was caught on November 5th, 1978, just 12 days after he transferred all the money into his account. So he was released on bail until his trial. And he had to live with his parents in the meantime. Surprise. Yeah. Computer nerd hanging out with his parents. (laughs) Hanging out. Hanging out. (laughs) Police enforced hanging. (laughs) The best part of the story, though, is after he was released on bail, he wanted to get enough money to pay for his defense. So he decided to use these same tactics he used before to rob the Union Bank of Los Angeles. And he was plotting with some guy to take $50 million from there. But the guy he was plotting with was an undercover FBI agent that set him up. So he sure knows how to pick them. <laughs> so then on February 13th, 1979, he got arrested a second time, five days after he had gotten off on bail. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, but he only served three, and then went on to work running computers at a nonprofit called the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and has since then faded away completely from the public eye. But he remains today... The greatest nerd to ever <laughs> walk the earth. How so. sleazy. How like wonderfully nerdy and sleazy. Yeah, wait till you see a picture of him. Oh boy. He embodies the nerd sleaze. For eight days he was in the closet. Might have been twelve days. <laughs> Stroking his diamonds. On a twelfth day of closet time. <laughs> That's all you got. <laughs> Stanley Rifkin moves in with his parents. <laughs> One childhood bedroom. I'm gonna talk about somebody who's almost as nerdy. Uh, I don't know if he's nerdy. He's very gentle though. His name is the Yankee Bandit. The Yankee Bandit. He later became known as the Down and Outer Bandit. Down and Outer? Down and Outer. For a while, he was the most notorious bank robber of his time. This was in the late 70s, early 80s, particularly around 1983 when you said the, the we're at the peak of, of uh, bank robberies. One of the peaks. One of the many peaks. <laughs> he held a record for a very long time. He held up 64 banks from July 1983 to February of 1984 when he was caught. He uh, held a really good record for a long time. He robbed six banks in four hours. <laughs> and he did all of this with a starter pistol, which he never held in his hand. He always had it in a bag. Like a horse race starter pistol? Yeah. 
Go. Fill the bag. That's how you caught him off guard. Did something happen? Yes, sir. All reports throughout his entire career, Robin Banks. Everyone regarded him as being incredibly polite and gentle with them. And even even after they, like he would leave a situation, people were like, that wasn't so bad. You know, at one of the stories I'm going to talk about, if you're nice while you're robbing people, people, they really, they forgive you very easily. Yeah, yeah they're like, okay, Note well. to the kids out there. <laughs> be polite. You can rob a bank. Put a smile on that gun. Put a smile on their face like the Joker. <laughs> yeah, like I was saying, he robbed six banks on his best day, November 29th, 1983, and he took close to $250,000 oh between, I believe it was Century City and Sherman Oaks. Okay. Okay. Never heard of either of them. <laughs> his name is Edwin Dodson. They call him Eddie Dodson. 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 <laughs> I didn't make that connection. That's a girl. <laughs> it's always some movie, isn't it? Yeah. It's always one movie or the other. What movie? This story is very um, Ventura Boulevard, 70s California Free Spirits party with the movie stars. Tom Petty. Tom Petty song. <laughs> it's very Tom Petty song. Yeah, so he was actually born in North Carolina, and he was caught on a, a drug possession charge, and he fled that and moved to California with his girlfriend, and he started a life over here like under a fake name. Eventually, he had found an attorney who was able to drop those charges. He shouldn't have picked the Yankee Bandit to be his new name. He, he really gave it away. <laughs> After those charges were dropped... He just was able to use his original name, his real name again, excuse me. His, his original name was the Down and Outer Band? It was his original name. His Christian name? Why do you want to name him that? <laughs> You'll see. A long line from the Bandit family, that's why. So he moves to California, and this is in the late 70s. I think it was about 78. Mm-hmm. And he the Rifkin work- time. The Rifkin time, exactly. And he is working on a place on Melrose, as the book said, when it was hip but not trendy, which I like, it was very put very uh, funny. And he eventually is able to buy his own store where he sells these like vintage antiques, uh, where they like mark up the prices and sell to celebrities and stuff. I did hear about this. Did guy. you? Yeah. yeah. And like this spot eventually became a party spot, and like John Belushi and Steve Martin and Jack Nicholson and Lily Tomlin and Liberace and Yoko and John and Yoko were there. Yoko and Liberace. Yeah. <laughs> she was cheating on John with a gay man. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, wait, he's what? I want wavy hair like liberal. <laughs> that line sticks out so strong. Like who? Ladies. <laughs> so um, he's. God damn you! You're putting me to sleep with that damn Sandman. Wavy hair like Liberace. Sandman. Wavy hair like John Belushi. <laughs> so uh, he starts, of course, because of the time, starts taking drugs. He starts uh, because he's already got caught on a drug possession, which is just marijuana, and he's not really a particularly like drug fiendy kind of guy. He's very small, and people like him a lot. He's very uh, polite to everybody, like he would later be to all the bank tellers he would rob. He gets hooked up on drugs. He starts with, um, I think, what's the, I think it's called speedball, where you mix uh, heroin and cocaine. He starts with coke, and then yeah. he moves up to heroin slowly, does speedball, and then he gets onto something particularly vicious called, it's uh, heroin from Iran, and it's called Persian brown, and God. instead of... Um, I know him. Oh, yeah. I, I buy fiddlesticks from him. It's called Persian brown heroin. It's very sandy looking, and you don't... Uh, you could, <laughs> excuse me? Nothing. Okay. You could inject it with a needle or you can do the particularly wasteful thing with the heroin. It's called chasing the dragon. You like put it on tin foil and with the straw, you light it from underneath and it turns into smoke and you, you suck it all in. <laughs> That's what that means. Yeah. And you get high uh, really, really quickly. And you can breathe fire. You can breathe fire and you also uh, ruin your life. <laughs> Persian brown heroin went for about $700 a gram, which translates to about 20000 for an ounce. 
A junkie who was using a needle to inject it could make it on one or two tenths of a gram a day, which is about like $25 to $100 worth. But he was doing this other thing, the, the lighting, and he was chasing the dragon. So it, it was his habit was like $500 to $900 like a day. Like each time he had to go to the junkie, which was often because it was so wasteful. A day. A he day. must have had to rob banks to make that kind of money. Almost daily. He did it almost weekly. And he did it like, he went like he really was making withdrawals. Like he would just like, okay, well. He I'm was gonna... having withdrawals. <laughs> <laughs> Spread the withdrawals. Slowly because of his drug habit, store started um, failing. And he was just getting, he had no way to make income. So he decided, oh, hey, I, I know banks pretty well. I ran the store. I used to make deposits every day. I kind of get the gist of it. Uh, and he knew enough. Cash <laughs> he knew enough not to like wave a gun around. You know, they they call it a takeover where you go in with a gun, everyone yeah. get on the floor. Uh, he knew not to do that. He knew if he was just threatened them, they would just give him money. And he knew you have two minutes to get out of the place basically before the cops are able to respond. After you ask for the money, there's a silent alarm mm -hmm. under the desk that they do, and that's how they call the police. Um, I have one here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I wish there were some sound effects around here. <laughs> oh no, a jellyfish is back. <laughs> so on July 5th, 1983, he robbed his first bank, the Crocker National Bank on Larchmont Avenue, not very far from his townhouse. He waited in line just like anybody else, and then he chickened out and sat in the lobby uh -oh. for a bit under a tree, and a tree, under one of those plants that are tree-like. <laughs> and then he decided, oh yeah, I have a heroin habit. So he got back in line, uh, and he walked up, and he waited just like anybody else. He, uh, it was his turn, he walked up to the teller, Puts the bag on the counter. He unzips it to show the starter pistol. And he <laughs> says, you know what? This is a robbery. And that's how this all started. And by November of that year, he had already hit a 30 banks in a very calm style, which kept him low on the list of bank robbers because most of the ones that were violent are the ones who get looked for first because they don't want anyone to be killed. So people who are able to keep a low profile can rob banks for a lot longer because FBI agents are sort of like, whoa, whatever. Interesting. <laughs> go, go on. Low profile. And by the end of November, he had already hit 40. He, like, he was doing them quick. And keep in mind, he started in July. On November 29th, 1983, he did what many called the unthinkable. At 1.30, he robbed the bank. The <laughs> he robbed the sperm bank. They thought, it can't be done, Eddie. It <laughs> can't be done. <laughs> Sir, you don't know where you are. <laughs> We're not that kind of a bank. <laughs> Put the pump in the bag. <laughs> I'll create my own posse. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I'll create my own pasta. I'm like, Ugh. I don't even know what that means. It's sperm bank terms. <laughs> Yankee bandit. They call him that because he wears a Yankees cap as he's uh, leaving. Pulls it out of the bag, has sunglasses on. Yankee bandit. Wait, he puts it on when he's leaving? Yeah, he doesn't wear it. He's so cool. I know he is. He's almost, they, I don't want to say indescribable. They, they have a physical description, but he sort of looks like so many people. They're like, okay, great. Like short... <laughs> Short graying hair, gentlemen. I look for him. So Man in a hat. I, I found it weird to be doing a podcast about LA and the guy's wearing a Yankee hat. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah, but there's so many. He probably wanted to confuse us to think that the robbery was happening in New York and we wouldn't report it. That's why it took so long. On November 29th, 1983, the Yankee bandit does what is called the unthinkable. At 1.30, he robbed the B of A in the Maros district for $1,740. 30 minutes later and 16 blocks west he hits a city national bank in the Fairfax district for $2,349. 45 minutes later, he hits a century city, goes into a bank, tries to rob it, but the, the teller gets scared and starts to back away, so he chickens out. Mm. But he still counts. Yeah, I know. Who could be more scared? <laughs> oh, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> As they're both backing away from each other. Played by Donna to the ghost who's scared of humans. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Don Knotts trying to rob Stan Laurel. <laughs> <laughs> but you were, but I was, but you were. Ollie. <laughs> so he leaves that bank that he tried to rob. He goes like a block away to the first interstate bank and robs them for $2,500. Another 45 minutes later, he takes the 405, robs the Imperial Bank on Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood for $4,190. This one was mentioned in the book because uh, this branch was six blocks away from the FBI building in Westwood. So they thought, oh, the audacity that this <laughs> punk comes right, like, drove right across us to get there. And then he heads to the first interstate bank in Encino, walks away with Two thousand four hundred thirteen. Six banks in four hours. Of those, five were successful. And for the day, he walks away with around $13,000. About a month later, he hits uh, four banks in one day and walked away with twelve grand. So he was very good at this. He had his method. He stuck to it. And it was so low profile that he was able to do it for a very long time. They thought they were about to peg him down. And he disappears for like four weeks. And they can't figure it out. Turns out that these two big takes that he had, the desperation came from he was going to take a trip to England with his girlfriend. And he oh. wanted to fund that. Oh. And he also wanted to have enough heroin to last him four <laughs> weeks in England. So he didn't have a connection. So he comes back. And he robs a couple more banks. He kind of keeps it going throughout January. This time, the heat starts to get um, hot. <laughs> the heat gets turned up on him. Are you speaking of heat in the slang sense of police officers? Oh, I didn't even think about that. I just meant it was January in California, so it was hot. Uh, yeah, because there's no winter. Global warming. Can we do a podcast about global warming? Almost never. I want to do it on smog. Um, it's going to be the most boring podcast the, the ever. The dragon from the pitch. The desolation of smog. We can call it that. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> so he comes back and his friends start noticing that Eddie has a lot of cash. <laughs> and he doesn't make a lot of bank withdrawals. And uh, there's a description of him His in the paper. His friends keep track of how many times he with- makes a withdrawal from the bank. He Does anyone know Eddie's debit code? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've never been to the bank with him either. Like any bank in the area because he always freaks out before we go. He's like, Damien, I'm trying to take him to church. No, no, no. Um, his friend, Charlie Fine, lends uh, Eddie $500, I believe. And it's a couple months and everything. He's going to see the money again. Then Eddie says, well, come over and I'll pay you back. So he comes over and he pays him in like, tens and, and like 20s which is they call the low end part of the the when you rob a bank and they just like try to stuff it with like small bills and stuff mm-hmm. so that's what he was giving to his friend this charlie fine guy was going through the paper one day and he, he saw description and i think they had a photo like one of the security photos that's really grainy because it's from like 84 and it's it's eddie with a yankees cap and sunglasses he's like oh and he pulls up a drawer and finds a photo of eddie with a <laughs> big bear wearing a yankees cap with sunglasses just casually so he talks to eddie and he's like you know you might want to slow this down i kind of have a feeling i know what you're up to and it's gonna get ugly and it did he tried to rob a bank in um sunset and vine the bank of america right there sunset and vine which yeah, is right next to palladium Mita? Wait, yeah it's right next to palladium it's it's not near me but yeah the it, like on the other side of the block is the um Ali Film School, which oh. is frustrating. And the dome is right there. It's really close. It's like a block or two away. Oh, yeah. I, oh. No. Wait. I think if that's the one you're talking about, I think that's where they tried to reopen C.C. Browns for a little bit and oh. it didn't work out. Possibly, yeah. Call back. Go on. <laughs> he doesn't have an argument with the teller, but she is insistent to not give him the money. And what he... do you mean, go Mets? <laughs> Look at the hats. Also, I need some money. Now, according to the book I was reading from Reader, there's two tellers. There's the female teller that Eddie ended up with and she's kind of adamant to not give this robber the money. And he kind of is starting to get more and more aggressive into a point where she's getting scared and she doesn't make a hoopla because he has a starter pistol and she knows the starter pistol. <laughs> but there's a, a male teller who's attracted to this female teller who could tell that she's something's happening there and he kind of like pegs it. So he walks away with some money and he's almost out the door and then he can hear 
this male teller chasing him down. So he's okay. And the male teller is not going to like chase him because he doesn't know this gun's real. So he starts trailing him and then he's just walking faster. And then um, the teller finds a uh, taxi driver. He's like, okay, well, follow this guy. <laughs> follow this guy. And Eddie's just walking, walking. I know. And he walks in an alley. He's just tossing money to like try to go, okay, here's money. Leave me alone. <laughs> not working. And this bank teller and the taxi driver are chasing him down the street. I think they end up all the way on Franklin from Sunset. Like he's just trying to get away. And um, he passes this group of Latino gentlemen, and they're like, oh, stop him, he robbed the bank. I'm like, who cares? Me too. <laughs> and then eventually, uh, he's trying to get away, and a cop on a bike sees this thing happening, and the teller lets him know. And then before you know it, he's arrested. Uh, this is in 1984. And after this, he's put away for 10 years, where he has to go clean. He's very polite about the whole thing, admits to everything, pretty much. And everyone's like, this guy's really nice. <laughs> uh, he's released 10 years later. At this point, he becomes a caretaker to Jack Nicholson's ranch. Okay. I know because he knew Jack Nicholson back in the day. He's like, "Oh, you just got out of prison. Let me help you out." So he wants. He's like a caretaker for his home. Jack Nicholson and caretaker are two things that never go all together. <laughs> Let me tell you that. <laughs> you know, he's trying to stay clean, but it's still. I mean, it's still the party scene of LA and stuff. And Jack Nicholson is the heart of the party oh, scene. Oh, you know it. And he gets back on drugs eventually. He hooks up with a girlfriend, and she's what they call a coke fiend. So you know, it, it happens again. And he begins robbing the bank, but he's not the, you know, times have changed. Like you've mentioned before, security cameras are better. There's security cameras behind tellers now. There's more sophisticated, which I read a lot in his situation, that those um, exploding money bags. What are they called? That's what they're called. That's what they're called. Money bags. Money, money, boom, booms. (laughs) No relation to the mighty, mighty boss tones. (laughs) No, a small relation. A little bit. Third cousins. Yeah. Like explosive devices and bags of money and they go off and they... And it blows blue paint all over mm, Blue or... or and it's hilarious. Yeah, I know. And you can't use anything and everyone's all mad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that had advanced uh, a lot more than what it used to be. So he was going against this new technology that he hadn't uh, had a deal with before. And he's also much sicker and older than he was before. (laughs) And before you know it, he's robbed something like 12 banks again, like in a very short amount of time. And eventually they call him the Downer and Outer Bandit because... I don't know, there's a movie called Down and Out in Beverly Hills about, it's Nick Nolte, and he's a bum and he used to be rich, and he's just hanging out with, I forget who, I, it might be Bette Midler, I don't remember. He's described as this, because he's robbing these high-end areas, but he's like sickly looking, and he, he's like dressed in like very baggy clothes. At some point, he um, carjacks a young lady, and she described it as one of the most polite carjackings, like, I'm very sorry, but <laughs> he's I'm- so polite. I, he like holds a starter pistol, like, I'm very sorry, he's but still I- still got the starter pistol? He's still got the same, I don't know if it's the same starter pistol. <laughs> he steals her Mercedes, and he gives her a contact number, or no, he takes her number, says, listen, I'm gonna call you back in a couple of days, I'll give you, we'll arrange me to car, and a couple of days pass, she's like, well, I'll never see that car again. He calls her, oh. and he says, listen, I need it a little bit longer. I'm very sorry, but I need a little bit longer. And she's like, fine. And she let the police know. And uh, this goes on for a little bit longer. Eventually, you know, because they already know his name because he got caught before. Mm-hmm. They know what kind of car he's driving. They track him down to something called the Farmer's Daughter, which is running the Farmer's Market in, um, it's like a hotel, a motel. Oh, a yeah, that's Inn. still there, right? I believe so. Yeah, it's, it's like a restaurant slash hotel or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. In Fairfax. The, yeah. Yeah. Well, he said that. Yeah, I don't know. I said it a long time ago. Yeah. Talking about something else, but yeah. <laughs> He's caught there in one of the rooms, and they, they do the bullhorn thing. Eddie Dodson, come out with your hands up. <laughs> and he, he opens the door. He sees a like a, a hallway full of FBI agents. He slams the door. It's like, give me a minute. <laughs> he has a gun in his hand. It's, it's not loaded. It's I think it's a real gun, but it's not loaded. So he ties one off shoot some heroin, good old Eddie, and he goes out to the balcony, and he's holding the gun up, and they're like, drop the gun, we'll shoot, and he's hoping to get killed, mm-hmm. but they don't do it, and he's like, okay, 
never mind. <laughs> and he goes downstairs and he's just holding the, he's waving the gun. He's just hoping the cop will kill him because he's like, I don't want to go back to prison. I'm too old. And um, eventually, a very heroic, but they all say very dumb move. One of the cops tackles him. Uh, they put him back in jail. But he didn't serve his full sentence because... This happened in front of the farmer's daughter? Yeah, in the parking lot. Wow. And he even apologized when he uh, is able to. Uh, he apologized to the FBI agents who had to deal with him in that in that time. Apologized to the... Um, he apolog- Such a low self-esteem. I know, poor guy. Such a nice guy, though. He apologizes to the woman whose car he sold. He's I'm telling her I'm very sorry that happened. Her car was in very good condition. He apologized to the people of Farmer's Daughter. I'm sorry for the scene. He is not kept for his full sentence because he turns out he has hepatitis C, which is terminal. So they didn't think he was going to live. And gross. All this nice stuff. And as soon as they find out he has hepatitis C, gross. <sighs> Keep him Drug. <laughs> Dope fiend. Gross. Yeah, and, and eventually he's he's let uh, free. He kept in touch with the author of the book, William Rader. They would write together. Mm-hmm. But he died later that year. Mm-hmm. The same, because of hep- he had hepatitis C. He, he was, the, for a very, very long time, was the most notorious bank robber. The record holder. The record holder. A very polite guy with a Yankee cap. Was a, was a record holder bank robber in Los Angeles. I find that very funny. <laughs> Since we're sticking to a slight chronological order. Yes. Greg has another one for you. I sure do. This story fits very well chronologically. It also is a a great segue because these are the people that broke Eddie Dodson's record. And they didn't do it by being gentle, actually. It was by (laughs) extreme force and very controlled but uncontrollable situation. Uh, They're known as the baby bandits. Adorable. I'm a baby. (laughs) Give me your money because I'm a baby. Um, The baby bandits were uh, known because they were a bunch of schoolyard kids with uh, semi-automatic rifles in the south central area that would do violent takeovers of banks no one was i mean there were some fatalities but they were mostly i think one cop got shot one of the the kids got shot but other than that i mean they were they were not none of these stories really were that violent really other than one of them we'll be talking about soon yeah. but the masterminds behind the abandons were two guys robert shelton brown aka casper or kaz and Donzel Lamar Thompson, a.k.a. Sea Dog, although he had like a lesser role in all of this. They acted like supervisors to these crimes. They would usually wait in a car, like a getaway car, and kind of just do instructions. It was a lot of supervision work. He's kind of the Charles Manson of bank robberies, in my opinion. <laughs> he just kind of watched over as all the bandits unfolded. They are now the holders of the most bank robberies, 175 bank robberies throughout their career, which is between 1989 and 1993. They used this method of this uh, remote control takeovers. They would just arm kids and have the kids go how the, old were these kids they range between uh 13 to like their early 20s they're all gang members they usually just got them through like drugs i read about casper as we'll call him would do things like i'll call him cas you call him you cas i'll like. call him casper because you're hip you pay crack addicts to just rob banks and pay them in crack and keep all the profit <laughs> he'd get like homeless people to rob banks with just a note and then pretty much keep almost everything. Casper, Robert Shelton Brown, was actually born in a really good family. They were supported, they were stable, but they weren't very supportive. They were like a big family. And they kind of got lost in the grind. And you growing up in the 80s in South Central, basically, like what else are you going to do but go into crime? Like there's the Bloods, the Cribs. boys in the hood. You, you, know how, you know how hard it is to get out of the hood. You heard uh, Lawrence Fishburne get that speech. Growing up as a, a male in that time, in that area, you kind of get suckered into it as a young youth, I imagine. I know nothing about it. <laughs> I know nothing about youth. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of cops that I was reading about say that he wasn't just some thug. He was actually really intelligent. He was like the mastermind of all this stuff. He had very uh, smart Yeah, tactics. none of these people were stupid that we're talking no, about. No, no, no. They weren't. None of them were They're, thugs. Yeah. Criminals are pretty smart. <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, like he had the intelligence to use 
thugs to do all his work for him. Mm-hmm. He had very uh, good evasive like driving techniques. Michael Corleone. I mean, uh, not Michael. Fat one Corleone. Don Corleone. Don maybe. Couldn't. Uh, hey, he didn't do anything. Nah, my hands are clean. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I'm back for another episode. <laughs> Take me to CC Browns. <laughs> they massacred my my Sunday. I asked for no pineapple chunks. <laughs> they massacred my Sunday. Now, as he got older, Casper got involved with the Crips. He started rising in the ranks really quickly because of his aggressiveness. Really yeah, very cripply. He uh, got into a special faction of the Crips called the Roland Sixties Crips heard of that one of the most dangerous of those this is one of the crimes i don't know if he's associated but this is one of their crimes they went into the home of nfl star kermit alexander in 1984 they killed uh his 58 year old mother his sister and two nephews and as it turned out they wrote the address down wrong and went to the wrong house and killed all those people rolling rolling 60 scripts there's a, a certain lack of information on casper so there's not a lot i know about the crimes he did but i don't know when he was born i know that at his peak he was 23 when he was masterminding all these robberies. He was a baby bandit himself. He, w- he was in a diapy. <laughs> he was really scary. Um, <laughs> you were bringing up statistics before we were talking about that. In 1991, Chicago had 95 bank robberies. In 1991 in California, they had 2,355. <laughs> it's so weird that... Uh, How come LA doesn't have a Batman and Chicago does? Exactly. Isn't that kind of exactly. weird? Exactly. Yeah. Chicago doesn't need a Batman. No, 95 this bank robbers. This city needs a Batman. <laughs> Get on it. Kill your parents. I suddenly lost a lot of respect for Batman. <laughs> and they were responsible for 175. And at this time, too, because of the, like you mentioned before, the access to weapons in that area, or just throughout, you know, whatever. But that's this area as well, because of gang violence and stuff, they're, they're able to get assault rifles. Most of them were violent takeovers. You know, Eddie, Eddie Dodson's time was sort of up of like, hi, I like money, please. <laughs> he would just get these kids. One of them, one of the reports, he took a kid, like he got a kid to ditch nutrition class and come rob a bank. Like 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, they would go into banks in Downey. Call it finance. <laughs> they go into banks in Downey, Heinz and Park. The kids were like uncontrollable, basically. They were, a lot of them were scared, but a lot of them also were very angsty. They'd hop over. They One report would like, I read about, they, they, uh, Try to fire a gun off and it wouldn't go off. So he like pistol whipped the woman. A gun was able to go off. Soon after that, he starts firing at the thing. And they're just kind of going crazy. The cops show up. They go through a back window. And the cops show up with guns. They are quickly arrest two of them. One of them tries to get away and like raises a gun and they blow him away. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all these awful stories. And, and, and they meant nothing to Casper. They were just like anonymous thugs that he would pull up. And he would, they would, always had a fresh stream of them. But this was also how he got caught because a lot of these kids were scared and they were really young. They were just willing to snitch anything out, but they didn't have a lot of information, really. <laughs> they couldn't, like, implicate him on anything specific. I found it really fascinating, though, that, this, like, 70s California had a lot of drug addicts uh, and 80s had a lot of gang members and drug addicts. And then uh, it moved slowly to the 90s, which we'll talk about later, which is a far scarier thing that we see now. Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth. Some. Stop it. You stop it right now. How did he get caught? They snitched on him? They decided that the the best way to do it, they were not going to catch him in the act because they almost had nothing on him. He wasn't in any banks. He wouldn't stay in jail for very long. So they they began to accumulate as much information on assaults with guns and then try to attach him. So they only got him really on 15, but would later find out he had, it was assaults with 175 of them. He also did really weird things like he, he had a lot of connections. He was really high up in the Crips, was able to once use a school bus as a getaway vehicle and an ice cream truck 
and a postal truck. Speaking of Batman villains. <laughs> it's very, yeah. He, he had these connections. So he, he was very crafty about everything. He, they, they never once called How him. How he get a postal truck? He knew somebody who had a private postal company. Yeah. Okay. And then he used. You can a, have a private postal company. I guess so, like small delivery places. But he painted painted it to look like a like a U.S. postal one. Oh, that's, he's got an artistic shit. Yeah, yeah, of course. His reign went between uh, eighty nine to ninety two, and eventually, yeah, like I said, they just they it was very simple. They just decided to to uh, implicate him for these fifteen robberies, and he just couldn't get out of it. He, they had him hard on all these facts given to him by all these kids who snitched on him <laughs> because he just had all he had left too many gaps in it. He just didn't kill enough of them. <laughs> He should have been That's doing that. That's his problem. That's his problem. You know what I give snitches? Stitches. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> long, long hugs. They got him also as well. Not only robberies that he did, uh, carjackings that were associated, assault charges that were associated. So him, Casper, uh, Robert Shelton Brown has 25 years before he's even eligible for parole. That happened in 1993. So if my math holds up, He's still in jail for he's, another four years. He's still in jail for just a little bit longer. Good. And then Sea uh, Dog Thompson would do 22 minimum, uh, which means he's be able to probably be parole soon. We so should have him on. We, we should have him on. We should. This one's really scary just because it, it shows like the rise of like gang violence and how it's systemized. Like how like they always talk about how prison has like a system and a culture to itself. But so does like these areas and these gang things. You think they're all like very uncontrollable, but they have rank systems and they have like ways to move about it. They have ways to get away with crimes where you can rob 175 yeah. banks and only there get were, implicated for 15 of them. There's, there were so many different ways that they were robbing banks yeah. at this time. It was a very creative time for yeah, the city. It was something of a renaissance. <laughs> you know, we, we knew how bank robberies were done in the West because we watched a lot of movies about <laughs> robbing trains and, and all that. And But like to start with... Uh, cyber crime to move with a more gentler crime and then move to systemized gang violence. Well, now coming up next, I have Hit a with it. different kind of crime. Violent, gentle, and very sophisticated. Kind of like me. Was it British? Because this is about California, friend. This one that I'm going to talk about takes place in the height of LA's heat days. Ooh. Heat again. Movie. But things are starting to change and with bank security becoming more sophisticated, like we talked about Armored car holdups were becoming more common rather than going into a bank. So this one, it was an inside job, and it was the largest armed takeover cash robbery ever in U.S. history. The Dunbar Armored Facility Western Regional Headquarters is at 676 Mateo Street. It's in that like industrial area mm -hmm, downtown area. where nothing is, yeah, except places to rob. Arch district now, yeah, yeah. The arts and heist district. <laughs> That's why they're there. There's no <laughs> art district. We're all here for banks. So in the mid '90s, a 28-year-old guy from Compton named Alan Pace mm -hmm. was the regional safety inspector at this facility. So his duties were to make sure the conditions and workers were being safe and that all the fire extinguishers were full. So part of his job was to take pictures of the compound and of employees to document what was going on. For whatever reason, eventually Pace got it in his head to want to rob the place. Mm -hmm. So he knew nobody would question his activities inside the complex. So he started being more precise and calculating with what he was taking pictures of, including all of the security equipment and all of the key personnel. 
and nobody minded because that was his job. Mm -hmm. So eventually, he had an entire map of every single aspect of the Dunbar facility, all the way down to where the security tapes were being held, Mm -hmm. and what each security camera was pointing at, and the intervals at which each of them would pan from side to side, and for how long. So he had recruited five of his childhood friends, who were all bouncers and rent-a-cops, to be his team for this heist. And they were a really tight group of friends, and they all swore to stick together no matter what. He coached them relentlessly on the layout of the facility and on exactly what each one of them should do during and after the heist. So around the office at work, Pace was friendly with everyone, and he was known as something of a prankster. Oh, boy. He would unscrew taillights on the (laughs) trucks, and he would report his coworkers for safety violations, (laughs) and they would all laugh. Silly beans. As their children could no longer be fed because they were suspended. (laughs) So eventually his pranks started getting on somebody's nerves Mm -hmm. and he got fired for tampering with one of the trucks. Oh boy. So he figured now it was time to pull off his funniest prank yet (laughs) to rob all of them at gunpoint. (laughs) (laughs) That night, September 12th, 1997, he and his five friends went to a party in Long Beach to set up their alibi. So after a few hours, all the guys left, and they met, and they changed into their robbery costumes. Mm-hmm. What are you going to be? So, <laughs> a dinosaur. <laughs> they put on their stuff, they picked up a U-Haul, and they headed downtown. When they got there, Pace knew that one of the security operators had just gotten a new truck. So he had repositioned one of the security cameras to face his parked car out front so he could always look at it. So Pace knew this is the door that we can easily slip by because it's looking at this guy's car. Right. They got there. The door was locked. But luckily, Pace still had his entrance key. So he just unlocked the door. Mm-hmm. And at 12.30 a.m. September 13th, he let everyone in. So they skirted around the cameras. They made their way into the break room. And they ambushed the guards one by one as they came by, and they tied them up with duct tape. Once most of the employees were taken out, they knew that all that was left was whoever was guarding and operating the vault. Also, they had to figure out how to get into the vault. (laughs) (laughs) Was that not worked out in the pictures? (laughs) Fortunately, it was Friday night, and Pace knew that on Friday nights... There was so much cash being moved out of the vault to be put into ATMs around the city to get ready for the weekend that they just left the vault open. Wow. So they rushed the vault, tied up all the employees, opened up the gates outside for the U-Haul to come in. They broke open the cages inside the vault that were filled with sacks of 20s that were meant for all the ATMs. Uh So Pace knew which stacks of cash were for which deliveries, and he took only the ones that he knew had the largest amounts of money, and also the ones that were not made out of fresh bills, because the fresh bills would have been sequentially numbered, and they would be easy to trace. Right, okay. So they stacked all the cash into the U-Haul, creating a pile of money that went up to their thighs. (laughs) Oh my god. But Pace wasn't, he wasn't done yet. They smashed up the security cameras, he took all the security tapes that had been recorded, Then they all piled into the van, and they drove it somewhere far away, changed their clothes, and went back to the party in Long Beach. The robbers, they'd been armed with handguns and shotguns, but not a single shot was fired. Mm -hmm. All in all, the robbery took 34 minutes, and they made off with $18.9 million. It was executed so perfectly, nobody could ID any of the robbers. There were no fingerprints, and even though that they had had an entry key, they forced entry into a few doors just to throw off the investigators. The only thing that got left behind was a tiny piece of yellow glass from the taillight of the U-Haul that accidentally got smashed when they were loading up the cache. So the investigators, just by luck, saw the piece of glass in the loading area, 
and they recognized it, that it didn't belong to any of the Dunbar trucks, and they sent it to the forensics lab. It was determined by the lab to have come off a 14-foot-long U-Haul truck. It was a great piece of evidence, but it meant nothing, because there were no U-Haul renters under Pace's name, so the case went cold. So then after the robbery, most of the cash got stashed in a public storage facility in Gardena. Mm -hmm. The robbers kept minimal contact with each other in case they were being watched, Mm -hmm. which they were. And Pace, he was a suspect from day one, and he was being closely monitored by the FBI, but he and his friends stuck to laying low and not spending anything lavishly. Meanwhile, Dunbar put up a $25,000 reward, and their insurer, Lloyds of London, put up an additional $100,000. The FBI called this Operation Dunrob. After a while, things cooled off and they wanted their money, so they set up a company called Extreme Entertainment that rented out jet skis and limos and stuff like that through which they could launder their money. How how subtle. <laughs> Golden jet skis. <laughs> they also spread out the wealth through real estate deals, but they came across one stack of the cash that they took on accident that was sequentially numbered, mm-hmm. so they tried to burn it, but apparently money doesn't burn very easily, so they went to Las Vegas But they found that all the crisp new bills were jamming in the slot machines. So they put the money in washing machines to crinkle them up Mm. so that they would work. And they spent a few hundred thousand dollars on slot machines this way. Oh my god. All this went on for two years and it looked like everything was going great until one of the men that committed the robbery, Eugene Lamar Hill Jr., decided to get a middleman to buy him some property so that it wouldn't be in his name. It was an okay plan, but Hill forgot to take off the straps holding the stacks of cash together, and the middleman saw this, and he reported it to the police. The numbers on the straps were recognized as those from the robbery. A quick search showed that Hill had rented a 14-foot U-Haul truck the day before the robbery and had returned it the day after. They quickly arrested him, and just as quickly, he gave all the names of everyone else involved in the robbery. The five men Pace hired got sentences varying from 7 to 17 years. Pace himself, who insisted he had nothing to do with the robbery, got 24 years and two months, and they have to pay back all of the money. The police recovered about $5 million in the form of homes and cars, but there's still over $10 million that is still accounted for out there, and nobody but these six men know where it is. So there's buried treasure somewhere out there. Oh, let's keep looking. And now this story is Dunbar. (laughs) That leads almost perfectly into my story because that story, like, the danger of having friends. (laughs) (laughs) Which we know all too well. (laughs) What a fun story that was. It's super heisty. It was very heisty. Very heisty. And if it wasn't for that meddling piece of glass (laughs) from the U-Haul. Who picks middlemen? It's like, oh, oh, I'm going to say something. He could have walked away with some money. But no, he had to be squeal mouth. If anyone gives you any money ever, you report them. Oh, yeah, definitely. I reported my grandma so many times. (laughs) I'm going to be talking about one of the most frustrating bank robberies. It's frustrating because trying to do searches, if anything else, only came up with this (laughs) one because it might be um, notorious, uh, one of the most brutal uh, shootouts uh, that's ever happened, not just in L.A., but like ever. I'm going to be talking about the North Hollywood bank robbery now, the one that ended in a brutal shootout that happened in 1990s. It is 1997. I know this for a fact. It was accomplished by two men, Larry Phillips and Emil Matasarano. What I meant with the segue was, um, you know, there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of loose ends to tie up. The beauty of this one is they were each other's only friends. <laughs> they had no other associates whatsoever. It's sort of that's Go on. <laughs> talk about only other one other friend. That's what brought down the Dunbar crew. 
That's what brought down Casper and the Baby Bandits. And the Rifkin guy, his, the, his old business. That, there you go. The Yankee Bandit la- lasted so long because he was a loner. He didn't really share with anybody. The same thing with these two. These two stuck together. They had no one else to turn to. They didn't really pull off a lot of things, but they didn't know who they were, basically, until they pulled the masks off. Like, oh, these people are these people. <laughs> Professor knows! <laughs> I knew it. You brought up the heat days. This story is incredibly steeped in heat. I think the most am- <laughs> steeped in heat. I thought the most amazing thing from the story was that it happened after heat because I thought heat was a, a rendition of the North Hollywood bank robbery. I always thought like, oh, it, it's no, this happened before that. These guys yeah. loved the movie Heat and they wanted to replicate it mm. uh, so much so they did a lot of things that were completely unnecessary. They sewed time watches to their thing, but all the footage of them, they never look at their watches. <laughs> They spend, and uh, it's in the book. Uh, he, and they were all overacting. <laughs> they were all, every single one of them. What are you talking about? Yeah, they never look at their watches. Time is essential in bank robbery. I learned that you have two minutes to do everything after that. Uh, he calls it the danger zone. Redder calls it the danger zone. The Dunbar people, they knew they had to get out because if they took any longer, like a fleet of exactly. Dunbar trucks with <laughs> men filled with machine guns, <laughs> men that eat machine guns for breakfast would pile out. Almost all the guys that we read about knew that. Whether these guys knew it or not, they were pretty much just living the fantasy life of wanting to be in heat really badly. <laughs> he talks about how they would spend six to eight minutes in the bank. Like it's it's incredible how much time they would spend. If, if you've seen the movie Heat, they had like a second car they'd run to and they blow that second car up and they go to like a third car. They did that. They didn't need to. The third car was made of cardboard. <laughs> it was a big wheel. You can't trace a big wheel. These, these two guys met in a Gold's Gym in Venice Beach. They were very into muscle magazines and stuff. They were very into like male power fantasies because they were very weak. Uh, Larry Phillips, his father had been like a career criminal who had been arrested a lot. He understood that whenever he saw the cops, he knew that Oh, my dad's in trouble. Bad times are about to start. So he grew up just hating the cops. He got into like shoddy real estate deals where he would just like rent out vacant homes and take like the, the, the deposit and the first month's rent. And then he eventually got caught for doing that. The writer keeps saying, these are the kind of guys that read like Soldier of Fortune magazine. They want to be mercenaries and they're very heavy on guns. He meets Emil Matasarana at the gym and he's this big lanky immigrant from Romania. His parents owned a like a resident care facility, I think in Altadena. They came from Romania and end up in Altadena, which is just funny to me. I don't know why. I don't know why it's so funny. stay in places that end in an A. Exactly. Exactly. Like they Dracula. <laughs> and they, they quickly become like just best friends and stuff. And then they start getting into crime slowly. They get pulled over one day. It's called typical Larry Phillips fashion. The cop's like, okay, let me see your ID. He's like, I don't have to show it to you if I don't want to. He's like, get out of the car. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're patting him down. They find like a nine millimeter in his back and they open the trunk and they call it a bank robbery kit, basically like ski mask and automatic rifles <laughs> and uh, stopwatches and Kevlar vests. And they're like, where can uh, you buy those? Hunting stores in case the, the deer shoot station. back. Yeah. <laughs> so they were arrested and they had all that stuff taken away. They posted bail. They got out. They got all that stuff back. Okay. Yeah. Weird. Eventually fantasy turns to reality and they start thinking, well, uh, we're dirt poor. Emil is pegged as kind of slow mentally and body-wise. He's very large. They describe him a couple times as Baby Huey. <laughs> Larry Phillips, they're clearly the mastermind, but even they're not much to work with, really. <laughs> so their first job doesn't happen in California. It happens in Littleton, Colorado, which is kind of near Columbine. Hmm. Very similar. A couple of years later, actually. They hold up a um, one of the Brinks armored trucks. And they get away with, I think, Dunbar. they get away with something like 23 grand from that. 
uh, come back to California and just slowly start wasting it all. <laughs> Two years later, on Roscoe Boulevard in Canoga Park, they uh, do the same thing. This is on June 14th, 1995. With absolutely no finesse, a Brinks truck rolls up to that Bank of America. The guard, Herman Cook, gets out and they ambush him and shoot him with no warning. <laughs> they pop up from behind a wall, completely dressed, they said, like ninjas with Kevlar, giant <laughs> rifles on the other side of a wall, witnesses everywhere, because the other side is a gas station, and they just unload these Kevlar piercing bullets, or the armor piercing bullets, I mean, yeah. and they just rip that thing apart, and they take... Uh, or Herman. Oh, yeah, he was. he's described as the nicest guy, and they just killed him with no warning. <laughs> and one day away from retirement. <laughs> and they took some bags containing about... He was allergic to bullets. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm itchy! They took something like $122,000 from that robbery. What's particularly uh, disturbing about this was they didn't need to ambush Yes, what is him. particularly disturbing oh. about this? <laughs> They didn't need to ambush him. They didn't really worry about the witnesses at all. They're, in fact, telling the witnesses to just go away. And they, they wanted to do this to this truck. They didn't want the money. The money seemed secondary. They wanted to commit an incredible act of violence because they loved heat. <laughs> they loved to kill things. They had these fantasies and these delusions, and they were these big warrior men, and they wanted to rip this truck apart, and they did. And it's awful. And these are the kind of guys they were dealing with. Like I was saying before, how in the seven or yeah, the late seventies, early eighties, it was like junkies who were robbing banks, and then it slowly moved to gang members. Now it was moving to these like fantasy obsessed males with these giant guns, who just kind of what eventually we have now, which is little boys with big guns who want to be ninjas and mm -hmm. kill everybody. Yeah. Video game robbers. <laughs> Video game robbers. Exactly. Brinks and Bank of America put out a reward for. $100,000 for any information. Again, that information is to turn friendship into greed, basically, or basically to get you to out your friends so you get that money. Hopefully mm -hmm. the, the, there's one friend who doesn't like you enough, but they didn't have any friends, <laughs> so it didn't work. That's what kept these guys kind of going for a while. Yeah, and this that's is the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and they got away, it's got free. Like I was saying, this is like a generation of movie watchers that like watches movies like Reservoir Dogs, where like the cops are always antagonists. Like they have that line in Reservoir Dogs, which is like, did you kill anybody? Uh, no, just cops. Oh, no, real people? No, just cops. <laughs> the cops in these movies are always the antagonists, so they kind of grow up understanding that. So they try to do it again, another uh, Brinks truck, but this one's a lot more unsuccessful because they try to do it while moving. So they move in the opposite direction, and their little Chevy celebrity car, which is funny because it's LA, so I have a Chevy celebrity. <laughs> There's a Brinks truck there. They're armored in the car, and they start firing at the Brinks truck. So it hits the driver, but he's still able to drive yeah. it and move it. But there's absolutely no planning to this. They were just trying to hope that brute force would get the money again. The, there are four guys in this truck. They have those slots that you can move a slot and just fire a shotgun. That is there was exactly what happens in heat, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's it's broad daylight. Witnesses everywhere. They had no plan. They were just hoping brute force, and they don't get away with anything. They 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 get away. They have to leave that one behind. They, cut, they rob a couple more banks in this style. This crazy brute takeovers where they take way too much time. They walk away with a lot of money at some point. The big one, the the North Hollywood one. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. They almost don't even need the money. Really, the money was secondary. Is it ever about the money? <laughs> Sometimes it is. When you're on heroin, trust me, it's about the money. <laughs> when you're addicted to diamonds, it's always <laughs> about the money. Yeah, so around this time, Mata Serrano was getting these really bad headaches. A CAT scan showed that he had a right temporal hematoma, uh, like a blood-filled swelling in the brain. He started getting a lot of these headaches, and he would like start having seizures. And they were giving him phenobarbital, which is the barbiturate that like helps you deal with seizures. He doesn't, doesn't really take them because he doesn't like to take medication, but this comes back to the story a little bit so that's later. That's how the government controls it, okay? <laughs> Everyone needs to know that. Their last two scores after they, they, the failed brink struck brought in a lot of money. They didn't need to do this big one. They kind of just wanted to. 
Midas Ronald was feeling sick. He felt like he might be dying soon. Larry Phillips, things were falling apart on his end too. So on February 28th, 1997 at 9.17, they show up at 6600 Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which is right near uh, Van Owen. And they walk in, they get everyone on the ground. Phillips takes over the lobby. Neil goes to the vault. It's all pretty standard. Again, they're taking way too much time. Someone hits the alarm pretty quickly. A couple things go wrong right away. Two police officers are just in the vicinity, just passing by, and they see these giant men in Kevlar tuxedos, ninja ski, ninja ski masks walking with these giant rifles. So they call it in. Right away, it's doomed. Cops are there a lot sooner than two minutes, but again, they're taking their time. Every description of them from witnesses say that they're lumbering, they move slow, like robotic. They're not responding quickly enough. It's because they're taking a meal's funeral barbitals to calm themselves down to get through this because they're acting like these tough guys, but they're really just on drugs trying to calm themselves down, which is why they could take hits and move really slow, why they're moving slow over everything. There's not enough money in the vaults. It got taken out because they've been robbing banks recently in that area, so people were getting wise to it. So he grabs the, the bank manager and they go behind the ATM to get money from, from the ATM. Again, not a lot of money there. <laughs> There's an access code and it takes 10 minutes after you to put the code in to get any money out. And the police are already there. <laughs> Everything's going wrong. They grab a bag to leave. As they go through the door, the explosive money bag goes off. <laughs> Boom. All the money's tainted. Everything's going wrong. So <laughs> they open the door. Cops everywhere. Like, okay. So they grab the bank manager again and they go through the ATM door on the side right away machine guns and they just start blowing everything and there's cops with like semi-automatic pistols behind cop cars and these guys i mean larry phillips painstakingly sewed kevlar together at joint parts with velcro so i think his eyes were uncovered and his ankles and that's it everything else was covered with kevlar and he could handle these bullets and he had armor piercing bullets coming from a semi-automatic machine gun he was ripping everything apart. Emil was just covered because he was so big, it was harder to cover everything. <laughs> so he was taking hits and it showed. But they were also on phenobarbital. So they weren't like falling over riddle, but they were taking these hits on Kevlar, which still hurts, but they were also bodybuilders. Like they were, they could handle it. Emil gets in, a, in their Chevy, the little white Chevy celebrity, and he kneels down. He's just moving the car slowly. And on the other side of the car, Larry Phelps is just firing at police officers, ripping cars apart. Cops are getting hit left and right. And he's walking with the confidence of invincibility, if you've seen the footage. He, there's not a worry. He's just standing straight up and he's just firing, walking slow as the car moves slowly with him. It's really terrifying. Terminator. Terminator. It's like Terminator. They're also a bodybuilder. And for some reason, no one can really figure it out. Larry Phillips turns around and starts walking off and Emil doesn't really know what he does. He drives away down Archwood Street, like right off of Van Nuyen. Larry Phillips walks down the street and, you know, he's just firing this giant machine gun and he gets shot in the hand, drops his gun. And so he pulls out uh, like a 45 and starts like a handgun, starts firing at the cop. Now the cop's like, oh, now he just has a regular gun. Might have armor piercing bullets, but he's not like unloading like a like a tank on me anymore. How many cops were there? I think every cop in, in the area was swarming down on them. <laughs> and they and they were held at bay for a very long time because of this their, their weaponry and their armor and everything. They were clearly not winning until he got shot in the hand. And then suddenly they got the, the balance was shifted. So he pulls out this handgun. It jams. Now, this is a weird point. He puts the gun under his chin and pops. At the same time, he shoots himself under the chin. A cop fires at his shoulder and severs his spine. So he would have died anyways. So they don't really know if... They want to take credit for killing him, but he killed himself, really. They think that he might have been trying to load the gun with his neck and have fired it off because he got his hand shot. So he was trying to load... Like, like a Pez dispenser. Like a Pez dispenser, trying to cock the gun with his chin, blew his brains out. I'm pretty sure... He's not that dumb. Was there candy in it? Yeah, but it's really chalky and it was broken in the nah. middle. Nah, I'm not going to eat it. I can't even dig it out. So Larry Phillips is dead. 
<laughs> oh, by the way, he's dead now. So funny, funny, funny. <laughs> oh yeah, Amanda. Amanda. So he's dead. His wife, their wives didn't even know what they were doing. They thought they were at a real estate seminar. They didn't even know they were robbing banks. They had wives? They had, both had wives. They both had kids that they didn't want to take care of. They both would hang out. They would hang out and watch Heat all day. And Why play can't your kids be Heat? <laughs> Alright, you be Al Pacino and you be Robert De Niro. Hey, Val Kilmer, get over here. <laughs> First name. Heat. <laughs> Emil uh, drives down Archwood, is trying to stop other cars to get away because his car's already been spotted as if wearing a ninja costume is not enough. He's trying to stop other cars. You can't see a ninja blending into <laughs> North Hollywood. During the day. He finds a Jeep on the side of the road and goes to it. Starts loading the Jeep with machine guns instead of just trying to get away. But he has no time. There's a heli- there's helicopter footage of him like, um, another machine gun, another machine gun. And he gets in the, he gets in the Jeep. There's no keys. Why would there be? It's in the middle of the road. So he thought, oh, the guy just abandoned the Jeep. So he's like, oh, but he didn't check first. Okay. Anyways, the cops roll up on him. They're both firing from behind the car. The cops go under the car and start shooting at his legs, which are not protected. He hits the ground, and they just they take him down and they shoot him. They shot him a lot. They shot him a lot. All right. He died on the on the pavement there. He died on the pavement. So they both died at the scene, and they were the only ones that died. After all that Good. mayhem, they were the only ones that died. When you said at the beginning when they pulled their mask off at the end, I thought they both survived and they were like tied up back oh. to back and they pulled out their mask. <laughs> hey, they didn't know who they were until I mean they were, they, they were anonymous until the very end. They couldn't really care. They're like, oh, you mean that we stopped these people a long time ago and pulled all this this robbery kid out of the trunk and we did nothing? Okay, kind of like something that happened recently. <laughs> Oh, you're absolutely right. I remember when I was a kid, we went to like a fire department sort of ex- exhibit at a, an Elysian Park, and they had the car fresh from the shootout, and there was nothing left, basically. <laughs> there was like one door. There were so many. I remember there being so many bullet holes. It was like the, the wheels were just torn to hell. You can see, you, you know, well, you can watch the footage. The footage is like notorious. It's terrifying. It really is. And it, it's so great. The cops were like, the cops were heroic. They would um, load up in a car, drive over to a wounded cop, throw him in the car, take him out of the scene, and then they would just continually do this. They would continually go back into the, the line of fire. And city's finest. City's finest. This was after, like, years. Like, remember the early 90s of the riots and Ronnie King beating, like, the LAPD they was just... It. They were used to it. They were used to it. They looked so bad for the first half of that decade. And after North Hollywood, they're like, well, they're all right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the North Hollywood shootout. It's um, the most notorious shootout. In U.S. history, it really is. I think. It did not inspire heat. It was inspired by heat. Life imitates violence. <laughs> Ultra violence. Okay, so now the final story, because we all thought, you know, all this horrible stuff was happening in the 80s and 90s, and we all might wish for the good old days of L.A., but we're all wrong, because <laughs> it was, if not worse, really? in the early days of Los Angeles. How early? <laughs> Very early. <laughs> L.A., it has a brutal history. I had no idea about this. So to paint the picture, 1848. Yeah, all the way back. The California Gold Rush started. Mm-hmm. Also in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed and ended the U.S.-Mexican War. And then in 1850, California became a United State. Also in 1850, L.A. became an official city. So all of this brought a huge influx of population to the city, Also around this time, 
all of the bandits and desperados that operated in the gold mines up north were being driven away south and took refuge in L.A. Oh. Meanwhile, all the outlaws from Mexico were coming up north to head to the gold mines, and both of these groups met in the middle in L.A., oh. and they did not get along. <laughs> what this meant was that during the 1850s, there were midnight raids, open-day robberies, and just flat-out murder of innocent people in the streets every day. Wow. A visitor to L.A. at this time said, I never yet saw so many gallow birds as may be seen here in all my life before. And there was no order at all. One year, the mayor of L.A. resigned from his job to lead a mob that dragged a suspect from jail and lynched him. And then this may ex-mayor now had a special election to get himself re-elected, and he won. Wow. And this, this was the first American mayor of L.A. <laughs> so vigilante justice was the law of the land, and there was no police force to stop it. There was a sheriff, but there was no police force. So in 1853, prompted by the murderer of the city's second city marshal was himself murdered by a bounty hunter. Mm. So they figured, all right, we need something. We need yeah. to do something. So they said there was a volunteer force called the Los Angeles Rangers that were farmed that eventually became the LAPD. So at the tail end of this era in LA history came one of the most legendary and notorious bandits of all time. And he was referred to as the Scourge of California. <laughs> oh my God. This man's name was Tiburcio Vasquez. Yeah. He was born Jose Jesus Lopez on August 11th, 1835 in Monterey as the youngest child to a very respectable family. His grandpa was one of the first mayors of San Jose. His great grandpa came to California as part of the Dianza expedition in 1776. Vasquez himself, he was very well educated. He was bilingual. He wasn't very intimidating. He was like five foot five, but he was extremely charismatic and charming and mm -hmm. everyone loved him. He was the apple of every man and especially every woman's eye. <laughs> he wore fashionable clothes. He was a great dancer. He was an even better guitar player. When he was 17, he opened up a dance hall. A few years later, things were getting a little rowdy at a Fandango one night, Scaramouche, mm. and a white constable was killed. So then Vasquez panicked. I'm not sure if it was his cousin or his friend, this guy Anastasio Garcia, who used to be in Joaquin Murrieta's band, I think, who is like the number... There's the number one bandit in California history yeah. is Joaquin Murrieta. Mm -hmm. Number two is Vasquez. So this guy he was friends with, or cousins with, I'm not sure, he was a vicious bandit. They both fled the scene after the murder of the constable, and they went into hiding, leaving their third friend to hang for the murder. Oh my god. So while he was in hiding, Vasquez began to learn the lifestyle of an outlaw, and he took to it. He never looked back, and it was at this time he changed his name to Tiburcio Vasquez. From then on, mm -hmm. Vasquez tagged along with Garcia and his gang as they robbed stagecoaches and they wrestled horses from ranches all the way from San Jose down to L.A. County. He even got mixed up in the Roach-Belcher feud up north, which I had never heard of, but it was like, this, it was like this Hatfields and McCoy type thing oh, okay. going on, but in California, so it was better. <laughs> so they were doing that until like 1857. Then he was in Newhall up by Santa Clarita. Mm -hmm. He got arrested for stealing horses, and he was sentenced to five years in San Quentin. However, June 25th, 1859, there was a huge prison riot at San Quentin. Vasquez escaped, and then he got arrested a year later in July 1860 for stealing horses again <laughs> in Jackson. He was sent back. He loves horses. <laughs> he just loved little ponies. <laughs> then in September, I could do a pony. <laughs> 
that in September 1860, he and some other prisoners captured a guard and tried to flee across the San Francisco Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call it the Frisco Bay. Yeah. They, that they were caught again, and Vasquez was chained up and thrown into a dungeon in San Quentin until he got released legally in August 1863. Okay, let him out of the dungeon. <laughs> then in January 1867, he got caught up again trying to rob a store in Mendocino, and he, got, he went back to San Quentin. Oh But he got out later that year. So these were like his early middling days. But after this latest release, he got serious and he formed up a quality gang. Up until this time, Vasquez and his gang were relatively innocent criminals. But then in 1873, there was a holdup that they staged in the town of Tres Pinos. Mm -hmm. And it ended with a triple murder. Cool. And Tiburcio Vasquez became a household name in California. And then he followed this up with a visit to the town of Kingston which is near Fresno, Mm -hmm. where he and his gang tied up everybody in town and they sacked the entire town in five minutes. Wow. This meant that now he had a $15,000 bounty on his head and his name was too hot, like heat, in Northern California. So he decided to move exclusively down south to L.A. County and he set up camp at Lake Elizabeth, which is near Castaic Lake. But eventually he was found out and just barely eluded capture by the duo of the Monterey Sheriff and L.A. County Sheriff William Rowland, who was the youngest L.A. County Sheriff at age 25. They found them because his position was given away by an old cohort of his whose wife was cheating on him with Vasquez. So after this... Friends don't have any. (laughs) Never have friends. I agree. After they got chased out, Vasquez fled into the San Gabriels with this woman and one remaining trusty partner. They were there for a while. The woman gave birth to Vasquez's child, but eventually Vasquez wanted to get back into the game. So he abandoned this woman and the baby in the mountains and he left to put together a new gang and took up his new hiding place in Agua Dulce at the famous area now known as Vasquez Rocks, which is like, it's very close by. This area used to be home to the Tatavian Indians. Mm-hmm. Since then, it's become an iconic filming location. It's been used in Blazing Saddles, okay. the Flintstones movie, the 1931 Dracula, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Army of Darkness, the Muppet movie, the Lone Ranger, Lassie, Twilight Zone, Zorro. It was in the music video for Black or White. And it's been used so frequently in Star Trek that it's referred to by losers as Kirk's Rock. You just named all my favorite movies. <laughs> Lassie like top, movie? Yeah, my top 20 favorite movies you just listed right now. What's a Star Trek? <laughs> What's Muppets? <laughs> so from these rocks, Vasquez descended through the valley. He spent some time in those rocks above Chatsworth. Yeah. where Santa Susana. Santa Susana, where... Manson. The Mansons lived for a little bit. Spawn Ranch. They went back through the Santa Monica Mountains and they scoped out a ranch of George Carolombo, a.k.a. Greek George, who was a Syrian <laughs> immigrant that drove camels in the army for General Beale, who was actually the man to first bring California gold back east and started the gold rush. So he brought this upon himself, really. <laughs> so this ranch, it was in an open, empty area of land that is now known as West Hollywood. <laughs> Around what is now King's Road between Santa Monica oh, and yeah. Fountain. I know King's Road. Yeah. Like uh, s- some other charming criminals we know, he made friends very easily and mm-hmm. allies everywhere he went. So Greek George agreed to let Vasquez and his men hide out on his ranch. So from here, Vasquez scouted around for their next target. And they settled on a 5,000 acre ranch near the San Gabriel Mission in what is now Monterey Park. Okay. The location is just west of Garfield Avenue between Coral View Street and El Repetto Drive, which you'll find out why it's called that. The man... <laughs> who owned the ranch's name was Alexander 
Repetto. Oh, interesting. Like the street. Repetto was an Italian immigrant. He's credited with pretty much establishing that part of the city, and he was publicly known to be very rich. So Vasquez gathered his men and made the journey. They went north through the valley, east through what is now Lakeview Terrace and Sunland Tahunga. Mm-hmm. They camped out at the foot of a big rock they called Pietra Gordo, aka Fat Rock, Fat rock. which was either Eagle Rock or where the Devil Gates Dam is at Arroyo Seco. Okay. And then the next day, on April 14th, 1874, Vasquez and his men approached the ranch posing as sheep shearers and were let into Repetto's house. And immediately when they got inside, they pulled out their guns and Vasquez demanded his money. Repetto insisted he had no money, but eventually he pulled up $80 to give to them. But Vasquez knew he had more, so he took him outside, strung him up to a tree, and put a gun in each of his ears and told him that if he didn't give him more, he'd hang him. But Repetto insisted he had just deposited most of his money in the bank, so Vasquez demanded to look at his finance books. <laughs> and, and they all put on their accounting visors. <laughs> Give me out. that abacus. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out that it was true. All of his money he just put in the bank. So Vasquez made him write a check for $500 and sent Repetto's terrified nephew to the bank to cash it and bring the money back. This bank was the Temple and Workman Bank, which was on the Temple Block, which is now City Hall. And here's the incredible connection I found. Temple and Workman Bank evolved into the Farmers and Merchants Bank, which was bought by the Security First National Bank, which evolved into Security Pacific Bank, which is the bank that Stanley Rifkin robbed wow. at the beginning of the story. And you said that the baby bandits also hit that yep, bank. Yep, they also hit that bank. Yeah. To give the Repetto's nephew a little extra boost of confidence, he told him that if he said a word to anybody at the bank, he would come back home to a dead uncle. <laughs> I'll know. Just trust me. I'll know. (laughs) So the boy got to the bank, but he was visibly nervous and suspicious looking. So the bank called Sheriff Roland, and he told them what was happening at his uncle's ranch. So the boy said, all right, just give me 30 minutes. (laughs) He went ahead of them, threw the money at the robbers. But as they were counting it all out, they saw the dust coming up from like a mile away of the officers coming. So they grabbed all their stuff, and they made off like bandits. Is that where the phrase comes from? What phrase? So supposedly on their way out, they stopped and buried a large amount of gold on the ranch, which led to a legend that there was buried treasure on Repetto's ranch, which eventually led to treasure seekers just trashing the place in the early 1900s, trying to find that gold. As they were fleeing, they stopped to rob a passing group of men, including the superintendent of the Los Angeles Water Company. They took $300 in coin and gold, and they also took the superintendent's watch, And then they stopped again as they were getting away to rob a settler as the sheriff's posse was in sight. So then Vasquez and his gang, they fled into Arroyo Seco. They were just barely ahead of the sheriff's posse for over a day in a chase that led through the Big Tahunga Canyon. When they had to camp out at night, they were less than a mile apart from each other. Wow. And from here, Vasquez hid out for a night at Mission San Fernando, whose overseer was anti-gringo, and he sympathized with Vasquez before completing the escape and crossing back through the valley to Greek Georges. So they they got away. The news of a heist was huge, and the city was terrified at the prospect of Vasquez still being on the loose, and it became apparent to the citizens that they they were not safe. The city was in chaos, (laughs) and the police couldn't do anything to protect them, and people were sick of it. 
So everyone wanted his capture, and hundreds of people were sworn in as deputies to help find him. Oh my god. Meanwhile, Vasquez was hiding safely at the ranch. He got a girl pregnant who is either his niece or the daughter of one of his men, but whoever it was, their family was not happy about it, and they went to the sheriff. Oh. <laughs> and they tipped him off. So Sheriff Roland sent an undercover agent to the ranch who spotted Vasquez there, and then he formed a posse and advanced on May 13, 1874. There was an empty lumber wagon that was passing by that they commandeered and hid in the back. And then it just got up and the people at the ranch were like, eh, it's just another lumber wagon. Then they all just piled out and they stormed the house. Vasquez jumped out of an 18-inch square window. I don't know how he fit through that. He jumped right into the gun of an officer who shot him in the shoulder with a shotgun. Vasquez immediately admitted who he was and surrendered. He told his captors that they were good men. And he said, it was my fault. I shouldn't have tried to escape. He was taken. Listen, we all made mistakes. <laughs> you want a Trojan horse, me? That's Let fine. me see your gun. <laughs> he was taken into L.A. County Jail where he was held for nine days. During these nine days, in true L.A. fashion, he became a major celebrity. Mm-hmm. Since cross-country communication was just starting to be established, Vasquez's exploits and trial became one of the first big nationally sensational stories. His name was even known in Canada. Wow. Yeah, wherever that is. He got hundreds of visitors. Many of them were first-class ladies who brought him bouquets. One day he got 673 visitors, and everybody loved him. The superintendent of the water company came to see him that he had just robbed. robbed him. Vasquez apologized for what he did and returned his watch. Classy. Even Repetto came to visit, and he forgave him. Yeah, he even this, char- this guy is charming. I know. He reminds me a little bit of Ruoff Valentino. He even got a professional portrait taken of him w- when he was in jail. He sold autograph pictures of himself out of his cell window wow. to raise money to pay for his defense. <laughs> the Merced Theater even put on a show called The Life and Times of Tiburcio Vasquez, which they put together in these nine days that he was in jail. <laughs> the lead actor was coached by Vasquez himself, who would visit him in prison, like Hannibal Lecter, <laughs> on how to portray him, and even gave him his own clothes to make the show more authentic. Vasquez wanted to play the part himself, but the sheriff wouldn't let him. <laughs> and then everyone went, oh, sheriff. Let him. <laughs> he murdered three people. All the newspapers interviewed him, which is when he started telling everybody that what he was doing was actually to try to start a revolution to retake California and give it back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. He said he was punishing whites for discriminating against people of Mexican and Spanish descent. Anti-gringo. And he planned to raise $50,000 to form an army to sack Los Angeles and then move their way south to take over San Diego. Boo. Boring. Let him. He swore that he was on a crusade of equality and justice. Mm-hmm. He confessed to all his robberies, but he denied that he had anything to do with the triple murder and Trace Pinos. Mm-hmm. So after his nine days in L.A., he was transferred up to San Jose, where he was sentenced to hang for the murders on March 19th, 1875. This was the last public hanging in California. Really? Yeah. The only word he spoke from the gallows before he was hanged was pronto. <laughs> So he's now buried at the Santa Clara Mission. Nowadays, Vasquez's legacy is kind of confusing because he was a convicted murderer and known robber and philanderer. But there's a Tiburcio Vasquez Elementary School in Salinas, (laughs) several healthcare centers and parks that are named after him. Mm -hmm. He's seen as something of a Robin Hood character for the Mexican people. 
even though he kept all the money for himself, <laughs> and he's looked back on fondly as a Mexican hero. It's the question of what version of his story do, do we believe? The one that glorifies him? The one that vilifies him? Do we remember him sticking a gun into an Italian immigrant's ear? Or do we remember him giving back the superintendent of the water company his watch? I, I think he wasn't, a Mex he wasn't a Robin Hood figure, but he was a Mexican who was doing something, even though it was bad, yeah. at a time when Mexican people were being treated like dirt and they were being pushed to a breaking point on what used to be their own land one of them just decided to push back we got our batman <laughs> <laughs> regardless when vasquez left la he took an arrow with him and the city started to settle down apparently since 1868 a bunch of midwesterners were moving into la mm -hmm. and they brought with them their zero tolerance for characters like vasquez and we're actively trying to make la more family friendly and attractive to god-fearing folk mm -hmm. which sounds Kind of similar. Yeah, it does. <laughs> One of the things I read in doing the research that put it best when they said at this time the pistol shot was drowned out by the school bell. Oh, I like that. Which stayed true for about a hundred years and then things got awful again. <laughs> so those are our stories. That's fascinating. It's very Hollywood of a, yeah. a bandit to be getting like dust to be teaching a, a coaching an actor on the, I know, the stage performance. I know. People he mugged came back like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Remember me? You mugged me. No, keep the watch. It's Can fine. Can I be in your gang? <laughs> I bought a potato gun. That's cool, right? <laughs> mm, that's great. Not for another 80 years, kid. <laughs> Bank robberies in LA. Who'd have thunk? I know. Who'd have thunk we were the capital? All the way from 1848. We lost it for a few years in the early 1900s to Chicago. <laughs> Stupid Chicago. Yeah. I heard that it's not as prominent in Chicago because if you take money out of a bank it's the windy city and it all blows away so they just keep it in the bank but it all blows into a deep dish pizza so everybody <laughs> wins <laughs> it's funny the the people in these stories that do the best are charismatic people and the people who do the worst at bank robberies like like a meal and, and the uh, losers with no friends with no friends wait a minute we should change our lives. You know, the more charismatic, you can get away with a lot more. Even if it's Casper and the Baby Bandits, you still need a little bit of... I love that show. Um, <laughs> you still need a little bit of charisma and rank to be able to pull systematic crime like that. The ones that were almost the worst at robberies, but the best at shooting police officers were the ones that sort of had no charisma whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. All of the, the people... Aside from Vasquez, but that was a different time when yeah. people, everybody was hanged. It was fun. <laughs> it was they were, time. they were, all of my people were charming people that got, that didn't get, they just got a, uh, it was a hard slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm, it yeah. broke a few bones, but they got away. Your people that were nice pretty much got away. Yeah. Except the ones, the weirdos, the weirdos. they got it hard. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that you said, a few bones broken. Specifically the spine. <laughs> We've decreased in bank robberies. What a shame. I think we should take the crown back. Heavyweight champions. Okay, I've just dialed 911. <laughs> I'm reporting this. It's okay. There's a pony pen I could write out of here. <laughs> sounds like Morse code. Horse code? It sounds like... We're sorry that this, I think this is going to be a long episode. Not that any of you are listening anyway. You all tune out after the first 40 milliseconds. Yeah, yeah. What's the sketch this week? Oh, it's as bad as last week? We'll go now. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Visit our uh, Tumblr page, lameekly.tumblr.com. Also, we are on iTunes. You can leave a review if you like, even if it's a star review. We'll appreciate. say it again. Mm -hmm. We've said it six times now. Ali.meekly <laughs> at gmail.com. That it is. LA.meekly at Wait, gmail. what are we called? Wait a minute. I thought we were LA Weekly. Oh, I'm in the wrong place. LA.meekly 
at gmail.com if you have any suggestions or any any um, complaints about our... Uh, or any spicy pictures you might want to yeah, send us. something, some lingerie on a mannequin get us all hot and bothered. Yet another long episode of LA Meekly. And thank you for listening. Thank you for bookending it, listening to the first four minutes, listening to this uh, uh, outro. For those of you just tuning in, (laughs) that's been LA Meekly. Catchphrase pending. (laughs) Oh, God, this is the worst one. (laughs) 